podcast dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea. Hi, Sarah. How are you today? I'm pretty good. I'm uh, feeling really grateful that the guy who was mowing his lawn across the street stopped just in time for us to record. (laughs) I'm glad because we have a really special and exciting episode. Today we're trying something different and new for us, and we're just really excited about it. Yeah, I, I think that I don't know. We'll see how it goes, but I'm really excited to talk about this with you today. We are discussing Roman Fever, which is a short story by Edith Wharton. And in our opinion, the perfect antidote to the strange combination we have of wanderlust and really short attention spans um, that we are currently dealing with. I think we should just start by talking about short stories in general, though. We have both talked about teaching short stories. So I'm curious to hear if you read short stories on your own or how and why you read them outside of the classroom, I guess. Yeah, I wish I read more short stories than I do. Similar to poetry, I think, I rarely feel the draw to pick up a short story or short story collection. And then when I do, I'm often glad that I did. When I do read short stories, I tend not to read an entire collection all the way through. I'll read a couple of titles that catch my eye or read one or two and then put it aside for a while. So my short story reading habits, I think, are actually well suited for my short attention span right now. I don't feel pressure to finish a collection just because I start it, which I think is nice for right now. And I can I can get the whole story, literally, in one sitting rather than with a novel where my brain starts to wander, especially right now. How about you? Yeah, I'm really similar. I definitely file short stories under the same category as poetry. And it's It's rare for me to just pick them up, but I do really love teaching them. And so I have a few go-to short stories that I have loved teaching over the years. But typically, if I'm reading a short story collection, it's something that I'm reading in addition to other things. It's kind of like it'll be on my currently reading list for three or four months because I just pick it up every now and again and read something. It's not, like you said, something I read all the way through. But you're totally right that right now it is still kind of hard to focus on reading. Yeah. And there's there's really something to be said for the sense of accomplishment that you get by finishing something. And so with short stories, it's a quick and easy way to get that feeling of accomplishment. That's so true. I have a tendency to not finish things that I start. So (laughs) for me, that sense of accomplishment is huge, finishing a short story. And short stories, of course, can range in length by a wide margin, right? We can have tiny 
page and a half short stories and then sometimes I'll be reading a collection and there will be like an 80 page short story and that feels yeah that feels more like a novella to me but sometimes I get filed in the short story category so it depends I mean I guess there are some short stories that would best be read in multiple sittings but I tend to kind of have like a sweet spot of 10 to 25 pages. It's like a great short story length for me. The story that we read for today, Roman Fever, fit that sweet spot really well. I feel like I read it in maybe 20 minutes, which is, I think, ideal. Like that's the ideal reading time for a short story. I agree. It's a great length, this one, and just packs so much into... It's 20 minutes of reading time. (laughs) It does. And I had not read this one before, but you had. And so we said we would like to just try a short story episode as a bonus episode. And right away you said we should do Roman Fever. So I would love to hear a little bit more of your reasoning behind why you thought this one would make a great short story discussion. Well, most of it is like you mentioned earlier, the wanderlust component. Of course, very few people, if anyone, are traveling right now, certainly not for pleasure. And so it felt like this would be a fun escape. It takes place, the whole thing takes place in one afternoon in Rome, but the description of the city is really lovely and a very important component of the story. But there's also the play on the title, which we can talk about a little bit, Roman fever, which was a real disease. It was a like widespread malaria epidemic in Rome in, I don't know, I want to say the early 19th century. That sounds right. Yeah. Great. (laughs) (laughs) There's a little bit of discussion of that literal Roman fever in the story, but then the story mostly is about this more figurative Roman fever of these American ladies who come over to Rome and behave in ways they maybe wouldn't at home. So I thought that could be kind of, it's definitely not a pandemic read, but no, there's almost but... an allusion to it in a <laughs> no, yeah, it's not. Way. It's not Station Eleven. No. <laughs> but it is adjacent. Yeah, it's adjacent to our cultural moment, but also offers a much-needed escape from our cultural moment. Agreed. And also, I've made it known that I love Gilded Age stories and also really like Edith Wharton, so I think that that made this an easy pick, too. Yes, yes. We've talked about how we love Edith Wharton's sassiness and her, I don't know, the way she makes her stories so dishy and gossipy, and this one perfectly encapsulates those elements of her writing they feel very modern and kind of toe the line between soap opera and like reality tv show almost (laughs) like with the level of drama that there is yes particularly this story (laughs) (laughs) soap opera but her writing it's really glittery and there's a certain glamour to it but then she's ultimately writing about uh, women's thoughts on women's issues and so it's just a really fascinating combination yeah 
there's more to it than the soap opera stuff. Although that would be enough for me to read the story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> especially right now. Yes, but you're so right that she is commenting on women's lives and women's roles in just a really fun way. I particularly loved reading the inner dialogue of the women in this story. So we have two middle-aged mothers, and they're also both widows, Mrs. Ansley and Mrs. Slade. And they are sitting on the balcony, and their daughters are, like, waving goodbye to them. Bye, moms! We're gonna go hang out with a couple of Roman guys. And <laughs> I like that they're the Roman guys are aviators, and they're flying these girls somewhere else in Italy for tea, and the moms are just like, yeah! <laughs> Have fun. (laughs) So fun to be a teenager again, right? (laughs) And so these women are sort of then stuck with each other and they talk back and forth. But then there's also this really fascinating inner dialogue where they sort of think about the other person sitting next to them. There's this backstory that's so, like you said, dishy. That's the best word for it. Yes. So should we talk a little bit about that? inner dialogue? Should we get straight into the dishy stuff? Yeah, why not? I guess this is the point where we should say, like, I think we're going to probably talk spoilers in this episode. Oh, we have to. Yeah. Since it's a short story and people could read it in 20 minutes, I feel totally okay with talking spoilers. So probably from this point on, if you haven't read it, go read it and then come back. Pause right now. Yes. We'll see you back here in 20 minutes. So in terms of the big plot points... You don't really notice any tension for a few pages. These women are sort of thinking about how they feel about the other one. They don't really like each other, and they make that clear in their inner thoughts. Yes, and they've lived across the street from each other in New York for basically their whole lives. And their daughters seem to be very good friends. So the, the reveal about the fact that they really don't like each other is intriguing. Yeah. And uh, I really loved the line that Wharton writes. She says, so these two ladies visualized each other, each through the wrong end of her little telescope. So good. Of course, I underlined that too. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And so uh, each one just kind of has these misperceptions about the other. And for a while, for several pages, I just thought like, oh, this is... This is just that sort of classic competition between mothers, especially like their daughters are both eligible young women who have big marriage prospects. This is very much just a little competitive nature of them being in proximity to each other and the way society has set it up for them to be rivals. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And then... (laughs) Then they start talking about how... They almost, like, covet each other's daughters. Fascinating. And Mrs. Slade in particular, her daughter Jenny is, she describes her as an angel. And she says she wishes she had a daughter who would, like, go and have a romantic affair that she had to rescue her from. She's bored. Yes. Her boring daughter. I love when she says, if I were a chronic invalid, I would have the perfect daughter. Yes! (laughs) Like, she has a daughter who would care for her, 
but she doesn't want that. She wants an exciting, dynamic daughter, not this yeah. boring angel. <laughs> and, okay, so I've, I was going to say we're going to get sidetracked, but it's a short story, so we can sidetrack all we want. Oh, yeah. As, as I was reading this and she's talking about her boredom, I just kept thinking of all of these contemporary lit novels where the middle-aged female protagonist is set up for a life change because her husband just died and her kids are like moving out of the house and she has to figure out who she is. Mm -hmm. And that's what this really felt like. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. And I know that is something that many readers are looking for in their literature is that focus on women's middle age not you know the not the hunt for a partner or that sort of trope and this is a interesting story for depicting that yeah so anyway then mrs slade she keeps getting like more and more irritated and she says i always wanted a brilliant daughter i got an angel instead and her companion, Mrs. Ansley, says, well, Barbara, my daughter is an angel too. And Mrs. Slade is like, of course, but she's got rainbow wings. <laughs> Your daughter is well behaved, but she's like this sparkling, vibrant daughter that I wish I had. And so, she, like, she thinks that Mrs. Ansley maybe like pities her and her daughter or something she has this weird yeah weird misconception about the way mrs ansley thinks about her she spends so much time getting mrs ansley wrong and assumes that mrs ansley gets her wrong too yeah and and we're mostly hearing from mrs slade's perspective and most of the hatred and anger is directed towards Mrs. Ansley. So then we come to this part where Mrs. Slade, there's sort of a reveal that shows why Mrs. Slade dislikes her so much. And it's revealed that her late husband, prior to when they were married, she, I'm trying to think of how to explain this because it gets a little complicated. It gets a little complicated. So basically, Mrs. Slade starts quoting a letter that Mrs. Ansley received when they were both teenagers. And the letter was from Mr. Slade asking Miss Ansley before she was Mrs. Ansley. <laughs> yes. When they were, you know, young and unmarried to meet him at the Coliseum for a romantic after hours evening together. And... Mrs. Ansley's like, how do you know what that letter said? And Mrs. Slade is like, because I wrote it. <laughs> I have the quote with the letter. Should I read it? Yes. Because it's, it's very, it is very dramatic. <laughs> My one darling, things can't go on like this. I must see you alone. Come to the Coliseum immediately after dark tomorrow. There will be somebody to let you in. No one whom you need fear will suspect. <laughs> So and over the top. <laughs> it is. And Mrs. Ansley says, you know, I still remember that letter by heart. She went to the Coliseum 
and she contracted Roman fever. Yes. And she, she ha- had to be bedridden for a bit. Yes, she be- she fell ill. And Mrs. Slade has just resented her ever since. She felt a little bit bad about her becoming ill and succumbing to this Roman fever. But beyond that, she was just really, really upset that she would dare go and meet with her, you know, beau, or I don't know if they were fiancés at the time, but, um, or affianced, I suppose is the proper term. But then, oh my goodness, plot twist number two. This is, so, this short story doesn't reach the climax until the very end. Yeah. And then it's just a mic drop and it's done. It's amazing. Yes. So. But the tension builds. The tension builds and the next twist sort of comes when mrs slade is saying to mrs ansley i guess i can forgive you because i just feel so bad that you were there all alone waiting and then you got ill and mrs ansley is like i wasn't alone (laughs) your fiance showed up (laughs) and mrs slade is like what how and Mrs. Ansley's like, well, I responded to the letter and said that I would meet him there. And he showed up. He was there waiting for me when I got to the Coliseum. So we did spend this little evening together. Yes. And Mrs. Lee doesn't believe her. And there's this back and forth of, I can't believe you did that. And Mrs. Ansley's like, well, I did. And Mrs. Ansley gets up to leave and... Mrs. Slade just, she really wants to have the last word and she just wants to hurt her because she's hurt. And she says, well, it's fine. After all, I had everything. I had him for 25 years. You had nothing but that one letter that he didn't even write. (laughs) And Mrs. Ansley gets really quiet and she turns back and she says, I had Barbara. And then she leaves. (laughs) My jaw dropped. I know. Like, I I didn't see it coming until, like, truly until the very end when Mrs. Slade starts to say, like, I had everything from him. And then I was like, oh, no, it's coming. And then that last line was truly a surprise. And it is very rare that I get surprised like that anymore reading. Yeah. And I loved it. Yes, it's so fun. It's such a surprise. I very vividly remember reading this for the first time, which was, I read it because it was in the textbook that I teach from. And I was like, oh, an Edith Horton short story. This will, this would be a fun thing to assign. And yeah, I had the exact same reaction. Each, I mean, as the tension builds, the twists come quicker. And you're like, just one after the other. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. And then at the end, it's just yeah, jaw dropping. Do your students just lose their minds when yes. you read this? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they lose their minds. And of course, I, I tell them about how Edith Wharton's work inspired Gossip Girl. And yes, they can totally see that in this story. But it was fun to reread it. I didn't get a chance to teach this one this year. So It was fun to reread it for this, and there is a lot of foreshadowing, but it's so 
expertly buried in a way where if you know what you're looking for, it's all right there. But for your first read, you get that delicious surprise at the end. Yes, I I'm really glad that you and you are really great about like not even giving me any hints about it. You never even <laughs> hinted that there were twists, which I always hate when people are like, there are so many twists. Why would you tell me that I'm anticipating and I always figure it out if you tell me there's a twist. <laughs> But not knowing that there's a twist and going into it was perfect. Oh, good. I'm glad. There's a lot of little foreshadowing where Mrs. Ansley is described as kind of having a secret and where she describes how Rome is so special and meaningful to her and how many important memories she has there. And then, of course, her catching Roman fever and then getting rushed off to be married two months later. She she gives you all of that. But, but because, in part, I think because it's sort of through Mrs. Slade's perspective, those details are not presented in a way that would make you suspicious at all. Definitely. And I think... Just one of the fun parts of the twist is then going back and realizing that the younger girls are sisters. Yep. So Mrs. Slade really has this impression. She thinks that she is like the queen bee, I would say. And that Mrs. Ansley is sort of more, um, she's quieter. She's more like internal and. She's respectable, but not interesting or glamorous in the way that Mrs. Slade views herself. Yes. And so the fact that both of these girls are related, but the one that is more uh, vibrant and sort of the enviable belle of the ball is the true daughter of Mrs. Ansley and Mr. Slade. Yes. And it's just like twisting the knife. Yes. I know. Does it kind of kill you a little bit that you don't get to follow the fallout? I mean, for me, it's like the ending is perfect and I wouldn't want it any other way. But I also want to know what happens next. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, it ended and I especially the copy says book one and book two. And I was like, there's no book two. Why does it say? Like, that's just how the story is split up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, surely there's more. And there is no more. That's just the end. And I was, I mean, it's genius. Don't get me wrong. But it does feel like, well, I, you know, I want to know. Maybe that would make for some excellent uh, fan fiction. <laughs> oh, yeah. Actually, that's a great assignment. I'm going to, I love assigning my students fan fiction. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to do that with that one one day. Because it's so, I mean, it's so fun. And then I think particularly if when you connect with the Gossip Girl angle, that makes the fan fiction even more fun to write. Because if they write it in present day, it still works. Like this really, I think, could work as a modern, I mean, it could be a really quick mini series. It could be a short film. It'd be a great stage show, I think. Oh, yes. Just like a two-woman two play. Yeah, one act. Mm-hmm. Oh, it'd be so good. I love, so I actually have a collection of Edith Wharton's short stories in book form. It's called The New York Stories of Edith Wharton. And 
Roman Fever is the last one in the collection, in part because it was one of the last stories she wrote and published before she died, but also, I have to assume, because the last line is just unbeatable. Nothing can follow this short story. That makes sense, and that makes me really happy that they did such a good job with planning that. (laughs) Yeah, me too, and the introduction to this collection I thought was really interesting. It's by Roxana Robinson, and she writes about how, in her view, this story, Roman Fever, is Edith Wharton's best New York story, even though it takes place in Rome, which I thought was interesting. She just likes how the New York society gets carried to Rome and back and Rome again and how interconnected all of these high society folks' lives are and how they can't escape their hatred of one another. Yeah, that's a really interesting point, but I can totally see it. Yeah, I I don't think I've read enough to, to have an opinion on whether I agree or not, but I, I thought that was really interesting. Oh, I love that. Another thing that this story made me think of, and this is partly just because I have recently finished my rewatch of every season of Gilmore Girls for like this is like the fourth time I've watched the all, all the way through that's amazing <laughs> I, th- I feel like I've mentioned it like 15 million times on the podcast already but that's just because that's what I've been doing with my time <laughs> um but there are so many Edith Wharton references in Gilmore Girls and particularly where Emily is concerned mm-hmm. Uh, Lorelai will often mention like, oh, this is out of an Edith Wharton novel. And I mean, a lot of the drama really is. But most in particular, when Emily takes Rory to Europe. Yes. And uh, Emily is sort of, this is at a point where she and Richard are split up. So she's relishing in the attention from the Italian men. And she's uh, like really feeling herself when you know like really they just know that she has money and they can get a tip from her and so that sort of longing the older woman longing for things that have passed and for past experiences really came through in this story and made me think of that where these women are reminiscing about when they were girls and able to run around with their bows and that they are just feeling kind of unmoored now they don't have their husbands to take care of their girls will be married soon and they're like well what do we do now yeah I I love that connection I think that first line of this story that is describing Mrs. Slade and Mrs. Ansley could easily be applied to Emily she says American ladies of ripe but well cared for middle age just love that sentence And in terms of thinking about where they're going next, I I think you're so right and that that is one of Mrs. Slade's jealousies towards Mrs. Ansley as well. She She goes down this whole rabbit hole of, oh, Mrs. Ansley's daughter Barbara is going to marry that rich Italian man and then Mrs. Ansley's going to get to sell her New York place and move to Rome and have a great chef and a good relationship with her grandchildren. And she's just concocted this whole life that clearly she wants to be the next step in her life. And she's just assumed that her friend is going to get there first. 
And I can just hear Emily Gilmore saying, well, uh, Pepper so-and-so, just her <laughs> granddaughter just made valedictorian at Harvard and blah, 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 she won't shut up about it. And <laughs> I can just hear her. Yes. Yes. I love that. She should. Is it Kelly Bishop, the actress? Yes. She should do an audiobook version of some Edith Wharton. Oh, that would be perfect. Since we're sort of talking about Gilmore Girls, we've mentioned Gossip Girl. I think it would be a good time to just mention if you like these things, then you should definitely pick up more Edith Wharton. So definitely if you enjoyed Gossip Girl, if you love Gilmore Girls, I think those vibes are very present in most of Edith Wharton's work. But are there any other authors or even TV shows that you kind of see in relation? Hmm. I'm going to have to think about that for a minute. The one that I was thinking of as I was reading, I kind of was reminded of Leon Moriarty. Oh, yeah. And like Big Little Lies and The Husband's Secret and her books are very much women who are concerned with comparing their lives to others and class lines and how wealth makes people act with each other. So I was thinking if you like Leon Moriarty, you might like Edith Wharton, which is a connection I had never drawn before reading this story. No, that is such a great connection. I I think that's 100% true, especially in terms of some of the short stories, which I do think tend to be a little bit dishier and more dramatic just because they're packed into a smaller package. The novels have, Wharton's novels have that too, but they, of course, feel a little slower because they're novels. But yeah, oh, I love that connection so much. Yeah, I think that was the only one that I came up with off the top of my head or as I was reading, though. I'm trying to think of any other authors that I equate with Wharton. I think another, not quite contemporary of Wharton, but she wrote a little bit after um, in the early 20th century is Catherine Mansfield. She was great friends with Virginia Woolf, and Virginia Woolf has, of course, completely overshadowed her, but Mansfield wrote pretty much exclusively short stories, and they all are about class dynamics and the refusal of the upper class to see the plights of the lower classes. And she was writing, she was from New Zealand, so she has kind of an interesting eye and take on that because she grew up in New Zealand and then wrote in England. Her stories aren't quite as sassy, but they do have some of those elements and very similar characters to Edith Wharton novels. The Garden Party is a great place to start with her short stories. That's Catherine Mansfield. I'll have to look up some more of her stuff. As you were talking and sharing more about Wharton's style, I was thinking even some of Taylor Jenkins Reid's earlier works, or even Daisy Jones and the Six, has that similar sharp look at relationships and that gossipy, there's a twist. Mm -hmm. I feel like her books always have a twist to them. And so I'm feeling some similar vibes there. Yeah, sticking with her, I think the seven husbands of Evelyn Hugo would be a good pairing for this. It has that glamour of old Hollywood. And yes, the the twist factor. Just some, just some surprises 
along the way, which are always fun. Yeah, and these are not distinct read-alikes. I just think if people like Reed's work and they want to read a classic, Wharton's probably an area where they should go to. If people like rich people problems books, yes, exactly. then Wharton's definitely the way to go. Yeah, books like The Nest, Jamie Attenberg's All This Could Be Yours, if you do enjoy that, rich people problems, if you love succession, those sorts of stories are very much to be found in Wharton's work. And again, it's so great that she's written so many short stories because you can easily find the short stories online, read one or two, decide if you like it, and then commit to a novel if you do. I agree. All right, Chelsea. So we started out talking about how even though neither of us have historically been big short story readers, we're finding them to be kind of perfect for our level of focus at the moment. So we're each going to share a couple of short story collections, either that we like or have enjoyed or that we have on our shelves and hope to read soon. So what's one of your short story collections? I am currently reading, I'm maybe a quarter of the way into the short stories from How Long Till Black Future Month by N.K. Jemisin. And this is sci-fi fantasy and, well, Jemisin is incredible, but her short stories are really amazing and mind-blowing because she is really well known for her world building which can sometimes for fantasy authors take pages upon pages upon pages, but for a short story, you have to build that world in a really short amount of space and time. So I'm really, really enjoying those right now. I would love to get my hands on that. I love Jemison, And I actually, I don't, like you said, I, I, I haven't read many fantasy short stories, but I actually think I would really enjoy that because I sometimes have a hard time committing to a fantasy world for they tend to be quite long. <laughs> so for that many pages. Yeah, they do tend to be long, but I'm finding that this this is the first Jemison that I've read and I intentionally picked it up as my introduction to her work because I knew that I could get accustomed to her voice and her style without having to devote the time to the fifth season or some of her much longer works. Which uh, stories do you have on your list? So I often enjoy getting anthologies of short stories rather than collections by a single author, just because I find them easier to page through sometimes, or I have a hard time reading one story after another by the same author, because of course, sometimes they take on similar tones and it's nice to get a little variety. So a collection that I have that I've read a handful of stories from, but not certainly not all, is Tales of Two Cities, The Best and Worst of Times in Today's New York. And I thought this was a great pairing for Wharton because all the stories take place in New York. And there are stories from Zadie Smith and Colin McCann Teju Cole, Victor Laval. It's a great mix of authors. And I like that kind of connective tissue of they all have that similar setting. Sometimes I get a little tired of New York novels because there are so many of them, but getting into to explore New York through a variety of different writers' voices is fun. 
I like that you mentioned anthologies because I think that those are a really fun way to get into short stories and find some authors that you really enjoy before committing to a collection. Yes. As you were talking about New York, I was like, oh, I don't think any of my short stories have much of a an Edith Wharton collection. We kind of said we were just going to talk about short stories in general. Yes. But How Long Till Black Future Month has a short story in it called The City Born Great, which is essentially a personification of New York City, and it's the basis for Jemison's new novel, oh. uh, The City We Became, I think. And so there is actually a New York tie-in there. I love that. That short story, The City Born Great, is available online. So we'll link to that in the show notes. Oh, awesome. I will definitely have to read that. And my first pairing is the only one with a New York or Wharton connection. (laughs) (laughs) What's your second collection? I really enjoyed... I, maybe, I don't even know if I finished it, but I've read at least most of the stories from Florida by Lauren Groff. Yes. And I really like her writing, and I think I might like her short stories even better than I enjoy her novels. That's fair. She has a really unlikable... I know we've talked about the problems with that word, but I think that for her, it applies both to her male and female characters. Yes. She can write some deeply unlikable characters, and so inhabiting them for a short story sometimes easier than for a whole novel. Yeah, agreed. And I picked up Florida when... I lived in Georgia, really close to the Georgia-Florida border. And so as someone who was not born and raised in the South, having that connection and then reading those short stories after at least having lived there for a while was just an interesting experience. But I don't think you have to have any connection to the South or to Florida in order to enjoy those stories. No, I agree. I, I also loved those stories and I don't have much of a connection to the South. Definitely. What's up next on your list? So up next for me, this is an older collection. It's called Laughable Loves by Milan Kundera. He also wrote The Unbearable Lightness of Being, which I actually didn't particularly love. But his short stories are very weird and kind of unsettling. And they're often about misperceptions and small moments that make things go awry in a relationship. I haven't read this one in in a while, probably not since college. And so I'm actually curious how much I would love it now. But my copy is so worn down. I, I read it many times in college, particularly a few of the stories in the collection. So even though my adult self can't vouch for it. <laughs> it was <Yeah. laughs> really formative for me. And so I, I thought I'd add it to our list. Nice. That sounds really good. Yeah. My last two here, I'm just going to group them together because they're collections that I have on my shelves, but I have not actually picked them up yet. I have You Think It, I'll Say It by Curtis Sittenfeld, which I actually think that one might end up being Wharton-esque, knowing hmm. Sittenfeld's writing. Yeah, I think you're right. I haven't read that one either. And Again, this is one of those cases where I love Curtis Sittenfeld and I'm just so rarely drawn to short stories, but maybe maybe I'll pick it up now too. 
Yeah, we'll we'll report back on that one. And then another one that I have on my shelf, that, and I've heard nothing but great things about this one, Heads of the Colored People by Nafisa Thompson Spires. I've heard great things about that as well. I think it was on the Aspen Words Literary Prize long list last year. I really oh, like nice. their picks. They're always books that deal with social and cultural issues and really make you feel and empathize in a new way yeah I'm I'm excited to pick it up it like I said heard nothing but great things it's a very slim volume of short stories but I just haven't reached for it yet well that reminds me of one other so I'm gonna do three last quick ones lot by Brian Washington It was on the Aspen Words shortlist for this year. It takes place in and around Houston and follows mostly young men of color who are questioning their sexuality. And it's a great, great collection that I absolutely loved. Sabrina and Karina by Kali Fajardo Anstein. I actually haven't read every story in this collection yet. Everyone I have read is wonderful, and she's from Denver, and I love the way she writes about a gentrifying Denver and how much the Southwest is changing, and I've had some students pick it as independent reading, and it's really fun for them to get to read a book that takes place where they live. And then one more that's more for fun Cowboys Are My Weakness by Pam Houston. It's just such a good title. (laughs) And she kind of has Wharton's wry sense of humor. And most of these stories are about rodeos and cowboys. And there's some deeper themes in there, but they're a peek into kind of Southwestern culture. And they're really good. I have Sabrina and Karina on my shelf as well, but the rest of the collections that you mentioned I hadn't even heard of before. Short story collections, unless they have an author's name who I know, I often overlook. And so, listeners, if you have short story recommendations for us, definitely share, tag us on social media. We'd love to take your recommendations on this one. Yes, definitely. And we would just love to know how you liked reading a short story with us and listening to a bonus episode because if you enjoyed it, we'll definitely do more of these. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So we need to hear from listeners to see if they enjoyed it. If not, you and I can just do this (laughs) offline. (laughs) (laughs) We'll have our own short story club. Yeah. But if people like it, I would love to do this again. There are so many good classic short stories to explore. Well, if you would like some more classic lit enthusiasm, as well as news about our podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod or Twitter at Novel Pairings. We would love to know whether you read Roman Fever with us or if you pick up any of these short story collections that we mentioned today so feel free to tag us in those posts and please tell your friends about the Novel Pairings podcast by writing a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing our most recent episode on social media. 
We declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How soon one tires of anything than of a book. We'll be back soon with an episode on The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan.